Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've assembled us here today to proclaim your steadfast love to the world. We sing to you because our hearts are overflowing with your generosity. We hear from your word because through your spirit, it brings us life that no food or drink can provide. We eat the supper together because in it, we are united to each other and into your son's death and resurrection. And in it, we look forward to the fullness of your kingdom where we will be assembled with saints from all time. We specifically pray for Pastor Marcel and his wife, Pauline, in Burkina. Please give Pauline a full recovery from her heart attack, including the recovery of the use of her foot. Give them full assurance of your love for them and continue to use them mightily for the protection of your gospel and the expansion of your kingdom. Give the doctors wisdom and skill for her physical care. Let your spirit shine from Pauline for their spiritual care. And Lord, for the other pastors and churches in Burkina, we pray that they would be rooted in your love. Let your Holy Spirit be the divine source for a divine love that would produce fruit in their lives and the lives of their children and their church. Let your name be praised and exalted in their gathering. And Lord, for the many expectant mothers we have in our congregation, we pray for continued health for them and for the children that you're growing in them. The blessing of life and being made in your image and drawing every breath is a treasure. And we pray that we would not take any of it for granted, but we would be grateful to you for every bit. Bring all of the children that we have in our midst into your eternal kingdom. Help us disciple them, speaking the gospel to them. The good news that your son bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and be alive to righteousness. <clears throat> And you raised Jesus on the third day, and now he is at your right hand, the place of honor and authority. God, we are grateful to live in a country that affords us religious liberty. This is a good thing, as you desire leaders in all high positions to allow your word to be preached freely and openly. Your good order includes authority and responsibility in all parts of our lives, from the family to the church to earthly governments and employers as all of creation is submitted to your son and your son is in glad submission to you. So we pray that you would install more leaders in our local, state, and federal government that understand that your authority is paramount and they will be judged on how they steward the authority and responsibility you grant them. Help them to steward well. Give us wisdom so we can navigate what it means to be in this world but not of it. Help us to obey your command to honor earthly authority while never compromising on our allegiance to you. You have made us permanently free from the tyranny of sin through your son's obedient submission to you. So we look forward, Lord, to that day when we no longer struggle with the sins that so easily entangle us. But until then, we thank you for your loving correction. We confess that our hearts, our minds, and our affections have turned from you even this week. We confess that we doubt your goodness when we doubt your good order displayed in your law. We confess that we bristle at and we brush off your loving correction that comes to us from our covenant brothers and sisters. Forgive us, have mercy on us. Open our ears so we can hear your correction that is all around us. Help us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Fill us with humility, knowing our weaknesses. Through your spirit and your word, change our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Ray. You can open up to 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Parenting is truly a weighty responsibility. Amen? amen. Two of you agree. Not only are parents tasked with providing for the physical needs of their children, shelter, food, water, those kind of things... But a good parent provides love, attachment, support, and wisdom. And on top of that, there's perhaps the most emotionally difficult part of parenting, the topic of discipline and correction. Parents have been given a commission by God for a very special assignment to raise up children to become responsible men and women, and as Christians to go beyond that and to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the myriad of bad examples around us of parenting in the world provide us with an ongoing caution that the commission of parenting is not to be taken lightly. Now, to do so, if we take it lightly, will lead to heartache for the parent and destructive outcomes for the child. Instead, we need to set a path of character and right conduct upon which our children are to walk and then stay consistent in guiding them down that path. Unfortunately, it does not take long in observing our surrounding society to realize that many have ignored or discarded their commission to steward and disciple their household well. Now, the context of the local church in Ephesus at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy was similar. You might say, Hans, why are we doing an introduction to parenting? There's nothing on parenting in this text, and I would say I beg to differ because there is parenting going on here. It's parenting and stewarding the household of God. Only there in Ephesus, it was not the surrounding society that Paul was observing, but he was observing chaos within the church, within the household of God. Remember that in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, Paul writes to Timothy, I am writing these things in this letter to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church. The household of God. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This local expression of the household of God was in disarray, and so Paul sent his trusted protege, Timothy, to put things in order by way of the good order of the gospel. And this morning, Paul will provide concluding remarks to his introduction that circles back and hits a couple of items that we've already covered before he gets the detail of stewardship through the rest of the letter. It will close the loop, in a sense, on the task with which Paul has charged him, and it will explicitly call out those causing harm in the church that Paul vaguely referred to earlier, and it will provide a strong example of how Paul dealt with those individuals with a desire for the gospel to be made manifest to the surrounding world. And so what we'll see this morning is Paul providing to Timothy a commission, a caution, and a model of loving correction. If you're taking notes, you can write down that as our title of our sermon this morning. A commission, a caution, and a model of loving correction. In these three short verses, verses 18 through 20, Paul will provide Timothy sound wisdom on stewarding the household of God well. And we are blessed to be able to glean from this wisdom as part of our effort to learn and employ what it is to steward the household of God in a way that brings glory to our Lord. So let's go ahead and read our text for this morning in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, and we're going to see what we're talking about here. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Nice, light text for the 4th of July. Well, the first thing that we see is that Timothy was commissioned to stand firm in the faith. Timothy was commissioned to stand firm in the faith. If we were reading this in the original context, we would have read it as a singular letter in one sitting. We unpack it today in 2021 because we are separated uh, from the context in terms of time and space, and so we need a little bit more time to unpack it and talk through that context. But if we did read through, what we would hear immediately is a closure of the loop that began with Paul's comments at the beginning of the chapter. Notice, for example, back in 1.3, Paul writes, "...as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons." Notice the ambiguity there, certain persons, "...not to teach any different doctrine." Paul then continues on, describing the false or errant doctrine that was the focus of these quote-unquote certain persons, who, verse 7, desired to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
As Tyler and Nick laid out before us over the last two weeks, Paul then goes on to define what good doctrine is. These folks were teaching bad doctrine, errant doctrine. They were being self-righteous without having any of the capability of actually teaching the word correctly. And so Paul says, I'm going to lay out the good doctrine. What is traditionally, he starts with, what has traditionally been called the first use of the law. That it convicts us of our unrighteousness and sin and separates us from God. That it points out our complete depravity, ungodliness, unholiness and disobedient natures as humans. And in so doing, the law is good. It helps us understand that we need a Savior. Amen? Amen. From that point of conviction, Paul then uses his own testimony, as we learned last week, to point out what the gracious gospel provides to the convicted sinner. Rescue, redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life. He points out that Jesus Christ voluntarily came into the world to act so that sinners might be saved through his death on the cross and resurrection to eternal glory and kingship. And rather than the eternal death and separation from God and wrathful punishment that Paul and each one of us deserved, God instead showed mercy. He granted to us an eternal hope that we could be one in Christ, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, no longer slaves to our nature that can do nothing else but sin. It is in this gospel, this one true gospel, that Paul is commanding Timothy to stand firm regardless of what forces of change attempt to overcome him. Now notice with me though, brothers and sisters, that this is not a request nor a half-hearted suggestion to stand firm. Notice that verse 18, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. The Greek behind both the words charge and entrust carry with them an implication that this is a commission that has been commanded from a superior officer to an enlisted soldier. This metaphor is obviously in Paul's overall understanding of ministry as he calls Timothy in his second letter to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We also see that even here, don't we? As he says in parallel, this charge is to wage the good warfare. In this local outpost of the kingdom of God at Ephesus, amidst the surrounding enemies of the kingdom of darkness, God has entrusted a commission to Paul, and Paul now entrusts it as a commission to Timothy. Folks, this is serious. This should make Timothy gulp hard that he has been entrusted with the future health of this local expression of the household of God. This is not just a side hustle. But Timothy had three things on his side. If he was fearful, if he was a little bit anxious, as many of us who are pastors who understand the weight of pastoring are, he needed to realize he had three things on his side. Most importantly, Timothy had what is translated here as the faith. Notice that he says there that you may wage the good warfare, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. The first thing he has is faith. And this is not an ambiguous faith or a faith that is particular to Timothy and his own beliefs or what his emotions dictate. This is a faith that is singular and it is outside of Timothy and it's been given by God as the only truth. Paul refers to him here as my child. He says, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child, which you'd remind us back in verse 2 of chapter 1, where Paul calls Timothy my true child in, look at verse 2, the faith. This is the one true gospel, the faith, that mankind exists in a state of pervasive depravity, depravity and sin due to the original rebellion of our first mother and father who had the freedom of choice in their perfected state and yet chose to determine sin and evil on their own rather than to submit wholeheartedly in submissive obedience to God, our Creator. And from that moment on, we have all been born into this state of sin, slaves to our depravity, being able to do nothing else, unable on our own power to overcome our evil hearts, unable to enter into reconciled relationship with God or with one another, constantly fighting against any authority. 
The only solution was for the infinite, immortal, invisible God to step into human flesh, 100% man and yet 100% God, and die a death he did not deserve on our behalf so that the wrath of a holy God would be poured out on him as the sin offering that would take away your sin and mine. And at the same time, confirm God's holy and just nature. Jesus then rose from the grave and ascended to the abode of God, proving his enthronement as the victorious king that destroyed the power of death and plundered the kingdom of darkness. Then in pouring out his spirit, God impartially and graciously plucked sinful humans who deserve wrath and death, you and me, out of our natural state. He gave us a new heart that now has the freedom to pursue obedience to him. Not the freedom to be individually autonomous, the freedom to be his slaves. So that we might know and experience what we were created to be, servants in humble submission to a holy, just, and righteous God. All of this is about his glory proclaimed among the nations throughout the cosmos and across the heavenlies. He has called you to be his own, to repent from the worship of self that has driven your life and turn to him in submission and confession of your sin. Friends, this is the only gospel. It is the one, the only one faith. There is no other. If you recognize that you have not repented and turned to the call of Christ, but you are hearing the call of God to submit your life this morning, I would love to pray with you after service about what that's all about. Please come talk with me after service. Repent from your sin and turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord. It is in this one true gospel and its surrounding one true faith that Timothy could stand firm against all the error and chaos that surrounded him. Paul knew that if he firmly planted himself in this one faith, that when every other ideology came against him, Timothy could stand firm. And then not only the one faith, but also Timothy could stand firm in his good conscience. This is the moral sensitivity to the very law of God that Paul noted earlier. It's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and his prompting to live out the good and not the evil as God defines it. It is foundational to the fight because by holding a good conscience, by being in alignment with God's law, not the world's law, not society's law, but God's law, he could hold a good conscience. And Timothy then could be assured that nothing stood between him and the God who would fight on his behalf. You see, when we openly rebel our conscience is seared, as we will see in a moment. And we know that that separates us from the very source of our strength and we become weak. Not only did he have the one true faith, not only did he have a good conscience and these could help him with warfare, but third, it says there in verse uh, 18, the prophecies previously made about you. There is some question as to what this is because it's not explicitly defined here, but we can guess that these are a form of marching orders given to Timothy through the Holy Spirit's direction from the leaders of the church from, with he, from which he originated, the church that sent him out. In 1 Timothy 4.14, it says this, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul brings to remembrance for him the commissioning of Timothy at the hands of trusted elders who had the apostolic authority of God to give it to him and to affirm for him that Timothy had the gifts to enter into this warfare and be strong in the midst of all that would come against him in battle. And I can assure you as a church planner and a pastor in all the times that I have wanted to step away to fall flat on my face and to do this no more, part of what has helped me is to remember the number of godly men and all the elders of the church that sent us out coming to me and saying, you are ready to do this. These three things helped Timothy and built him up so that he could wage 
the good warfare. And with these weapons of warfare, Paul was sending Timothy into the lion's den to wage that good warfare in the face of the enemy's assaults. And guys, this wasn't outside the church. This was in the church. That's where he was waging the warfare, was in the church. He wasn't out on a picket line. He was in the church. And this warfare imagery is not uncommon to Paul or the church at Ephesus in which Timothy finds himself. Most of you are familiar, for example, with his comments to the Ephesians church in, church in Ephesians 6. Go back to the left in your Bibles just a little bit and go to Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Give me an amen if you're there. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Does this sound a little bit familiar here? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And notice, guys, this is written to the very church that Timothy was sent to wage the warfare in. He goes on, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, so stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, there's your faith and your conscience, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the letter written to the church at Ephesus. Question and answer time. Who's this letter written to? The church at Ephesus, not just Timothy. The congregation, the individuals at Ephesus. So this charge to wage the good warfare, go back to 1 Timothy, that you see there in 1 Timothy is not just to Timothy. Yes, he's to lead the charge, but it's to all the people to stand firm on the one true gospel, but not to do it aside from the church, but within the church. He was to lead the charge, use his entrusted authority to protect the flock, and to guide them in protecting the gospel. But this charge was also given to the entire congregation of the local household of faith at Ephesus. Guys, my anecdotal experience in the church is that the majority of self-proclaimed Christians are asleep at the wheel when it comes to the charge that they have been given to wage the good warfare. The majority of Christians are walking through the front lines half asleep, not watchful, letting every fiery dart of errant theology or worldly ideology lodge in their heart, unaware that they are spiritually bleeding out on the battlefield, sedated by the morphine of an arrogance that they alone are the judge of what is good and bad theology. And so when things happen in the church and people act in a way that is against the gospel, oh, what's going on? They're shocked by it. And it breaks my heart as a pastor because then we come along and we act in warfare and people go, why are you being so mean? Hans, why are you so passionate on a Sunday? Just be encouraging and kind. Can you imagine a general at the battlefield going, everyone, excuse me? I know that they're shooting at us right now, but... Let's all be nice to each other. <laughs> As everybody drops dead. And this is not unlike those that Paul is about to explicitly call out. But before we get to them, let me ask you guys, brothers and sisters, is your view of your Christian walk one of warfare? in which you need to stand firm in the one true gospel, or are you asleep in the midst of the battle? Do you know it is your responsibility to protect the gospel, not just the pastors of this church? 
Do you look to historical and biblical truth to stand firm? Do you study what the orthodox gospel is to stand firm, to hold us accountable? Or do you bend to every voice and ideology that comes your way? In Ephesus, there were those that were waging warfare, but they did not realize they were doing so on the side of the adversary of God. And these were the certain persons that Paul has thus far not named. But now... Timothy is cautioned about the destructive nature of rejecting the true faith. He's cautioned about the destructive nature of rejecting the true faith. Because there is one true gospel that founds us, when we step away from that, we are playing with destruction. And we are doing so not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us. In Ephesus, Paul and Timothy were encountering the work of the adversary of God, not through figures wearing bright red pajamas with horns and pitchforks, but through individuals that had proclaimed that they too were in the same faith as Paul and Timothy. Brothers and sisters within the church. Unfortunately, they had since made a shipwreck of the one true faith. Let's read again the second part of verses 19 and 20 there. He tells him to wage the good warfare, holding faith with a good conscience. But then he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here Paul says that a group of people, quote-unquote some, have turned from the truth of this one true faith that we just laid out. In other words, by their actions and words, they were turning from the one true gospel. And when Paul explicitly names two men who were presumably their leaders, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he makes it very real for the church. It is even a possibility that these two used to be elders. Yikes! Which would explain Paul giving more explicit instructions to Timothy about the character qualification of elders in chapter 3 and outlining how elders are to be disciplined if erring in chapter 5. Now, just to put you at ease, this is not about our elders. (laughs) It is not about anybody who is a previous elder. It's not about anybody who's a current elder. So just be at ease there. But Hymenaeus and Alexander very much could have been elders. That might even be why they built up this following that is now in error. Unlike Paul, knowing the one true gospel and good doctrine, the comments in 1.6 tell us that these persons had no idea what they were doing with doctrine, yet they thought that they should be the teachers of it. They were without understanding, yet confidently asserting errant theology that is contradicting Paul and Timothy, causing the group as a whole to destroy their faith. The picture here of shipwrecking would have been a clear one to the Ephesian church as they sat on the Mediterranean Sea as a trading city and would have known that one does not recover from a shipwreck unless they are rescued as they are drowning. It would have been very clear. At least one of the errant doctrines that these two men were teaching was that the resurrection had already happened. Paul notes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. He says this in his second letter. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread throughout the church like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is another person who's part of the sum who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Additionally, we can infer that in contrast to Timothy, who has a good conscience, open to the direction and authority of Paul and the word of God, these men instead had closed off their consciences to any correction from the word. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul gives encouragement to Timothy that he should not be surprised that these kinds of people exist in the church, and he uses the phrase that these have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Seared consciences. 
meaning they have had the word brought to them multiple times, and yet they still stood in self-righteousness and said, nope, we're right. Now, this all seems very harsh and pointed to be saying about people that were most likely in fellowship with Timothy and the Ephesians church, doesn't it? I mean, today, if I, if I were to stand up and say, Hymenaeus and Philetus, you guys would be like, oh, man, that's, that's pretty harsh, right? But not only did Paul discipline them in front of all, not only did he name them as warning in a letter to Timothy, but God saw fit to include their names for all eternity to all those who are his. Why would he do that? Because, friends, if we believe this Bible that we hold in our hands, then erring in our belief or acting upon a false gospel will lead to eternal destruction. So we will take it very seriously. When we see a brother or a sister whom we love straying from the truth into destruction, rebelling against the one true gospel, or rebelling against those in authority who are acting within that gospel, we take it seriously because it will damage and perhaps destroy their faith and the faith of those they drag with them. So friends, when we hear prosperity gospel creeping up, or social justice gospel creeping up, or Christian nationalism creeping up, or CRT creeping up, or intersectionality creeping up, I stand on this podium and I say, do not follow it because it will lead to destruction, not because I hate you, but because I love you. These are false gospels that will lead you in error. Getting spicy today. In our society, though, even within the church, it's seen as wrong to explicitly warn those who are in sin or preaching an errant gospel. But friends, this is, in fact, so very loving when you realize where errant doctrine or false gospels are leading they're leading to destruction. And this is reinforced by the fact that Paul notes in 1.5 that the aim of his charge is love. The issues from a pure heart. And there it is again. Look at verse 5. A good conscience. In other words, that aligns with God's will. Love as God defines it is not unconditional positive regard. No matter what destruction a person is bringing on themselves or someone else, friends, love is acting in a way that draws ourselves and others towards God and his character. And those that are his will love truth when it's declared. They won't worry about hurt feelings. And so in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul and Timothy loved them enough to say you are acting outside the life based on the gospel and the commands of Christ. And they love the people of Ephesus enough to proclaim publicly, do not follow the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander, because if you do, it will cause harm and possibly even destroy your faith. This protection of a narrow view of the faith, friends, is not hateful or bigoted. It is loving because it is in line with the warnings that Christ gave us about drifting from the true gospel that we described earlier. Friends, remember the words of our Savior and Lord. This is in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is, what's that word there? hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. It's partially hard because every moment of every day, you have voices from around the world pulling you in a direction away from the true faith. And it's hard to stay focused on the true gospel. Notice that Jesus also said a little while later in 721, go ahead and go there for me, Paul, if you would. My remote's not working. 721 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, not everyone who proclaims to be the offspring of Jesus is the offspring of Jesus. Love assists people through the narrow gate. It doesn't worry about hurting their feelings. We do not follow a gospel of nice, where the outcome of the gospel is, as the bumper sticker says, random acts of kindness. It is right, godly, and good to point out when a person is in rebellion against God. Friends, to not do so reveals that person's underlying belief that sin is actually not that destructive or that they care more about their comfort and desire to avoid confrontation than they care about the other person's eternal state. To not warn those dabbling in errant theology or sin is the opposite of love. It's indifference. Friends, when we are in blatant rebellion against God and his gospel, it is the most amazing form of love that we would have brothers and sisters step into our life, grab us by the shoulders, and shake us free from our blindness to sin by proclaiming from the rooftops that we are in rebellion and it will not end well. Paul, in naming this group to Timothy and to the entire church of Ephesus, in naming this group led by Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul is declaring his love for them and the church at Ephesus. Guys, he, he didn't have a personality change from when he says, our charge is supposed to end in love, and oh, by the way, Hymenaeus and Alexander are dangerous. He stated it because the end of his charge was love in truth. He's not doing it from self-righteousness. Remember, he just finished proclaiming that he is the chiefest of sinners, and the only reason he is walking in the truth is because of the mercy of God. So he's not doing it from self-righteousness. Friends, what is the greater danger to you? Is it that someone's feelings get hurt? Or that a person suffers embarrassment about the rebellion that they are practicing and refusing good counsel and the wisdom of God's word? Or is the greater danger that in wandering from the faith, a person within the church will destroy their faith, the faith of those around them, and place a dark blemish on the witness of the gospel? Which is the greater danger to you? Now, you may know the right answer, but I want to ask you, what do your actions speak? Your answer will tell you a great deal about who you worship. Yourself? The people who you're trying not to hurt their feelings? Or the one true God? It will tell you a great deal, your answer will, about who you love more. Yourself? The person whose feelings you're not trying to hurt? We already realize that's not love. Or the true God and his people. Paul responds to this rebellion from within the local church of Ephesus biblically because he follows through with the commands of Christ in discipline. And in so doing, he is presented with a model of loving correction. He is presented with a model of of loving correction. Paul is not practicing the gospel, the false gospel, excuse me, the false gospel of nice or the false definition of love. He is obeying the commands of Christ. For Jesus laid out the very steps Paul is here employing. Look again at the last line of 1 Timothy 1.20. 1 Timothy 1.20. I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Just as God disciplines those he loves, as we heard explicitly stated in our two readings this morning, his people are to likewise discipline one another in love when rebellion is present. 
Now, let's clarify what this destructive discipline looks like. First, the handing over to Satan. The true gospel speaks that when our first parents rebelled against God, they and their offspring handed authority that God had given them over to Satan, the adversary of God. And in so doing, they moved from the realm of God's authority to the authority of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. What Christ accomplished on the cross was to break the bondage of that kingdom, to bind the strong men that had control over it, and to begin pilfering people from it, drawing them by his grace into the kingdom of God. This is the message that Paul spoke to this same church in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, when a person is redeemed by Christ, they are drawn into the people of God who submit themselves willingly to the authority of Christ and his word and do so within the household of faith, There are no lone wolf Christians by submitting themselves to the other members within the local body of Christ. There is an inclusion into the faith, whereas prior to salvation, there was a purposeful exclusion to the household of God. And so when a person who has been welcomed into the household of God, included in the household of God, shows rebellion and sin excluding them once again is a way to let them know that they are in danger of stepping away from the narrow gate, the one true faith. It is the church's last-ditch effort at training them that they need to repent and turn back to the truth in their mindset and in their actions. Friends, this was not just done at Ephesus only. This was a practice in all the churches that followed Christ's commands. We see the same thing in Paul dealing with sin at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, (laughs) when you are assembled, Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So interesting, when, when we started to put membership in place and we started talking about church discipline, I had so many pastors who I love and respect say to me, well, where are you getting this from scripture? I'm like, everywhere. Churches who aren't doing this are in sin. They're not following the commands of Christ. To not employ church discipline is to not love your people. And it took not only the leaders to do this discipline, like Paul and Timothy, but it took the church as well to understand that in order to protect the gospel, they each needed to take responsibility for loving correction seriously. Stewarding the household of God is indeed a leadership responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of every member of the church. That is why we ask the question in every member interview, are you ready to co-labor with the rest of the members of this body in the heavy responsibility of defending the gospel preaching and witness of this church? That's how we end every interview. And so Paul's statement back at the end of our text today from 1 Timothy is that he has worked with the body to exclude this group of people, quote, that they learn not to blaspheme. This is not exclusion out of hatred or malice, but out of love. The Greek behind these words that they learn is that this act of discipline has been used to train them toward the desired goal of repentance. Church discipline is a training tool. Discipline is never to be done solely for discipline's sake, but so that the person rebelling and the watching church 
might be pointed towards greater communion with Christ and with one another. And this process, if done within the proper structure of membership, is extremely loving based on all we have discussed so far. Because as members, when you sign up for membership, you're asking to be disciplined if you step away from the truth. You're begging for it because you know how destructive it is to walk away from the truth. More importantly, this structure of membership and discipline is done out of obedience to Christ. Where am I getting that? Would you turn with me to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20? It's also up on the screen. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And these are words of Jesus Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, outside the covenant people. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In other words, Jesus said, I'm giving you, the church, the authority to practice my authority. And so as God acts, his people are to act. Christ commanded the church to discipline itself, not quickly, nor in a rushed fashion, nor out of malice, but purposefully and truthfully. Friends, each of us have been commissioned to defend the gospel witness of this church, to listen to the caution on the destructive nature of rejecting the one true faith, and to follow in the example of the apostolic fathers as they stewarded the household of God. Guys, this hasn't gone out of style. It's just hard to do, so people stop doing it. Now, how can we do that? How can each of us be responsible for the commission we've been given? How can each of us listen to the caution? How can each of us follow the example? Here's where I'm going to give you some application. First and foremost, we each need to hold ourselves accountable to believing and acting on the one true gospel. Not a gospel that comes across Instagram, not one that makes us feel good but is errant, the one true gospel. And as part of that, we as your elders and pastors want to ask you, beg you to please hold us accountable to that true gospel that is explicitly stated in the Word of God and the sound doctrine that emanates from it. Please, Check that what we are teaching is not simply opinion, but check to see if it comes explicitly from the text of God's Word. So many of you in your Christianity have gotten so used to TED Talks for Christians at most churches where a pastor goes, I have an idea, well, let me proof text it with some scripture, that you're used to random opinions being thrown about, not just exegeting the Word of God. If what we are saying on a Sunday does not come from what's right in front of you, you should come to us and say, I didn't really see that in the text. How can you do that? Come join our open elder meetings every second and fourth Thursday and hear how we try and sharpen one another to make sure we are preaching God's word and nothing else. We have a time where we sit and we give critical feedback and encouragement to one another. These open meetings are for you to come and take part in the leadership of this church. Observe what we're doing. Give your feedback. So first, we need to hold ourselves as a church accountable to the one true gospel. Secondly, each of us must give up our idea that we are the sole judge of good and evil and good doctrine. This is taking the, the Protestant corrective against Catholic abuse of authority back in the Middle Ages too far. When brothers or sisters whom we trust and in whom we see the fruit of the Spirit come to us and say, 
you are in sin and you need to repent, as Paul did to Hymenaeus and Alexander, we need to decide now, not when it happens, that we will submit to our brothers and sisters even if we don't feel like it. Because, friends, in that moment, our pride will rear its ugly head and we will walk in the sin of Eve, determining for ourselves what is right and wrong rather than submitting to the brothers and sisters with whom we have covenanted. I am dumbfounded by the number of people who sign up for membership and say, I'm totally going to be submitted to this body. And then when it comes to something that's important to them and their entire church stands next to them and says, repent, they go, oh no, you all are wrong, I'm right. Where does that come from? It comes from absolute pride. Third, we need to purpose to hold one another accountable to living out the gospel witness of the church. When we see flagrant sin in our brother or sister's life, it is our commanded duty to go to them and draw them out of it. If we allow our brother or sister to continue in sin or operate in a false gospel, not only are we, or excuse me, are they making a shipwreck of their own faith and headed in a trajectory toward hell, but they are ruining the witness of the gospel to the watching world, who, by our actions, rightly accuse the church of hypocrisy within our own ranks. And parents in this church, can I give you a particular word? This is not only something we do for one another, but we must do in loving our children. To act in indifference to our children when they are acting in sin or in bad behavior and say, we'll deal with their misbehavior later or hopefully they will grow out of it, shows more about your desire for comfort than it does your desire to discipline your children. And that bubbles over into how we discipline one another with adults. Make sure that we're purposing to hold one another accountable. Fourth, We need to make sure that what keeps us in mutual fellowship and responsibility for one another is the true gospel. The true gospel. Only that will hold us strong through the ups and downs that are normal in any friendship or relationship. Let me explain something to you. The watching world innately knows, almost better than most Christians, That if the gospel we proclaim is truly a powerful, reconciling agent to both God and man, then it will cause an otherworldly fellowship and union that is impregnable to the normal causes of division. But when we join a church because we have a consumer mindset and like their programs until they change, or because of social connections until they change, And when that affinity, that thing that draws us to those people breaks because of a disagreement, I don't know, like masks or COVID or politics or some other secondary issue, it leads to division. And what that division tells the world around us, it exclaims it. And it even tells people in the church is that the gospel we said united us at the first is either not real or it is not powerful. And in so doing, we blaspheme the truth of God's character and the power of his gospel. Why'd you leave that church? Oh, well, I just didn't agree with them anymore. Oh, so they're not teaching the gospel anymore. Oh, no, 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 that's not it. I thought the gospel was more powerful than that. So first and foremost, we need to hold ourselves accountable to believing and acting on the one true gospel. Secondly, we must each give up our idea that we are the sole judge of good and evil. Third, we need to purpose to hold one another accountable to living out the gospel witness of the church. Fourth, we need to make sure that we keep what keeps us in mutual fellowship and responsibility for one another is the true gospel. And fifth, friends, we are a Jesus-ruled, elder-led, 
congregationally responsible church. When we lead you in telling you that you need to be cautious about a brother or sister, or when we lead you in bringing church discipline forward to you, please, I beg of you, do your due diligence to see if what we are doing is biblical and true. So thankful last time we did church discipline, we had a number of members come to our open elder meeting and talk with us because they wanted to make sure that what we were doing was biblical. And also, please do reach out to the person who's being brought before you for church discipline and talk with them. Love them by calling them back to fellowship based on the gospel. But can I ask you for one more thing? Can I ask you for one more thing? Is that okay? Yeah? Can I ask you to do these things with the assumption that we as your leaders are trying to follow in the command and example of Paul and not for any other reason. We are doing it because we love you. Assume good intent. The mentality of the world has crept into the church where God's people seem to automatically assume evil of their leaders who are trying to lead in good faith and good conscience. Waiting for leaders to fail so they can say, see, we told you so. Don't let that automatically be the case in this church. I beg of you. I know that sounds self-serving, but I beg of you. This group, led by Hymenaeus and Alexander, thought that they were standing in truth, but they were actually making a shipwreck of the faith and causing division among God's people. Will we pay attention so that none of us are above falling in this same trap? Will we, as members, endure in the hard and loving work of holding one another close to the narrow gate, the one true faith? Will those of you who are not members in a church surrender yourself into the hands of God's people because you believe that the church you want to belong to is founded upon the one true gospel, whether it's here or at another gospel-believing church? Will you recognize that you need help in staying true to Christ? Will we pay attention and listen to the commission that we have been given, the caution that we have been told, and the example that has been set by Paul and Timothy? Are you ready to co-labor with the rest of the members of this body in the heavy responsibility of defending the gospel preaching and witness of this church. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Our text before us today shows us the importance of being ready and being prepared to do just that. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit has spoken through the Word today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is not light and airy and fluffy. It is light in that it shows us our path that we are often headed to destruction. And even as Christians, that we are not immune from wandering away from the truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would hold us firm in the palm of your hand, that you would not allow us to do so. And we can see in your word that one of the tools that you have given us to do just that is by being surrendered to your people. And so we pray, God, that you would use each one of us to hold each one of us accountable to walking in your truth, to staying away from destructive heresy, and to follow in the example of Paul and Timothy. Lord, thank you for this tough word, this thing that is hard, that points us to following in the narrow gate of the one true gospel. I pray for anyone in here who has heard this gospel, this one true gospel, that Jesus died for our sin because we were depraved, resurrected in victory to prove that death was no more and ascended to the right hand of the Father to be our King. I pray that anyone who's heard this and realizes they are outside of God's people, I pray, God, that you would truly work on their conscience to draw them to a place to confess to you that they need you and they need to repent. And so I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to one of the leaders of this church, to myself or one of the other pastors, so that they might 
pray in confession and start to begin and walk as a Christian. Lord, we as a church want to wage the good warfare. I pray you'd bring conviction on any of us who are dismissive or half-hearted. Help us to be a people that take this seriously because we proclaim to the world around us that hell is real and those who do not walk in Christ will end up there. Father, help us to understand the weight of this. One of the ways that you also help us to do this is by communion. And so as we step into this, we pray, God, that you would help our hearts and minds to be in a place where we can receive this as you intended. In Jesus' name, amen.